Welcome to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss the rise of Carlos Alcaraz, um, a player that much of the tennis world is talking about right now, um, and for good reason. Um, in recent weeks, he has won two Masters tournaments. Um, he's won the Miami Masters tournament, and most recently, he's won the Madrid Masters tournament. He also won Barcelona, a 500. Um, and for listeners who maybe aren't aware, he just turned 19 just a few days ago. And, and just to be clear, we're, re- we're recording this on May 10th, um, just, a, just two days after um, the end of the um, Madrid Masters. Um, and in that tournament, he beat Nadal and Djokovic and Zverev back to back. So he beat two of the greatest players of all time followed by the player who's currently ranked number three in the world, all back to back. Um, and we're, we're not unique in, in talking about him right now, as, as I said, much of the tennis world is. But then in this conversation, we're going to come at things. We're going to talk about him from a mental performance and sports psychology perspective and specifically talk about how his mindset um, and some of, you know, some of his behaviors, both on court and off court, um, have contributed to his rise to the top of the game. Um, so Brian, when, when we, um, you know, w- when you've watched him play, um, what, what are some of the things that you've noticed? Well, I think if we're going to talk a specific performance, the one I really want to concentrate on is his semifinal win against Novak Djokovic, because it felt like that match in many ways for having watched him over the last year or so was a culmination of certain things that he's been experiencing on the tour. And I think, and this this applies to any player, that tennis and you becoming a, a better tennis player or a better competitor is a, is a journey that involves difficult experiences. And one must learn from those difficult experiences. You know, we have metaphors like, you know, diamonds are, you know, come from pressure. Um, we often talk about, you know, forging ourselves into, into something better, you know, and the, the verb forge means to, you know, essentially to form out of heat and hammering. It's, so th- this process is never achieved through sort of coddling somebody along the way. It involves pressure and difficult experiences and losing, et cetera. And if you can have that perspective, like I think Carlos Alcaraz has and his team around him has, then you come out of that process, you know, into an area of growth. And that's what I thought I really saw uh, against Novak Djokovic this past Saturday in that semifinal was a lot of his experiences are now coming into a period of growth where he's becoming something special. And what told me that he was special, Josh, is, you know, it's a concept I've been working on with a lot of players recently is this idea of before you learn how to win, you have to learn how not to lose. And what that means is when under stress in a match, whether that's, you know, the pressure of somebody so consistent, somebody who's able to use directionals against you or depth, spin, pace, all those things, maybe taking time away, that's stress. And maybe sometimes you're overstressed and and we react in different ways. We could react with emotions. We could react with poor decisions. Uh, If it's way too much stress, we could even tank in those situations. And 
sort of the ultimate knowing not how or knowing how not to lose player is Novak Djokovic. And we know that because he's great at minimizing his physical and mental errors. Okay, does he go crazy a little bit sometimes? Yeah, of course. Um, but he's not number one for nothing. And and I think the thing that Novak Djokovic is really, really good at in, spe- in terms of knowing how not to lose, he's a master of winning games. Like he, he escapes a lot of break points, etc. And he's really good at understanding how to win games. And when he wins games and he escapes break points or, you know, even he's add down or, or whatever, and, you know, on the opponent's uh, serve, that just, uh, it can really get to a player. It can get to the opponent. And Djokovic did that several times in the third set against Alcaraz. And Alcaraz remained positive even when Djokovic kept escaping. I think a lot of other players, Josh, would have lost that match because it would have been, you know, get to the tiebreaker. Ah, here's, here goes Novak. He's doing what Novak does, you know, which brings us back to the topic of locker room power that David Samuel talked to us about uh, in episode 56. So I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that. But locker room power is when a player has this aura around them of being this great competitor, this winner, this player who's so, so good. And when we play those players, sometimes we we actually unknowingly back off or get a little bit more nervous because of who they are. And Algaraz, through this process, has more or less uh, inoculated himself to locker room power of the top guys. Uh, similar to how Nadal did that in, in you know 2005 and 2006 with, with Federer. He was the only guy who wasn't subject to Federer's locker room power. So that's one thing I thought was really interesting, Josh, was how Alcaraz, even when Djokovic kept doing what Djokovic does, um, remained positive, remained focused, and he won the match. He earned it. You watch that tiebreaker, he absolutely earned that match. Djokovic did not lose it, and Alcaraz did not lose it. He earned it. And that that's what made that, to me, such an exciting semifinal and and impactful because of the way he did it and against the player he did it against. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I, I actually am going to go and highlight a, a, a different match um, because I, I, I agree with what you're saying that in the match against Djokovic, time and time again, he showed that resilience, showed that mental toughness. Um, I would say I, in the match before that, in his quarterfinal match against Nadal, um, it was a little bit different, different type of diamond dynamics. Let me just set the stage a little bit. So he started off the first set on fire. I think Nadal maybe wasn't, didn't have his rhythm as much and Alcaraz won the first set, um, six, two. And in the second set, they were, I, I believe they were on serve in the beginning of the second set and Alcaraz took a, took a tumble, took a spill on the court, slipped on the clay and hurt his ankle. Um, you know, it wasn't. Uh, type of injury where he would have to, you know, retire from the match or anything, but it was an injury where he, he clearly had to dust himself off. Um, I think he had some, some tape put around the ankle from a, from a trainer um, later in the set. And, um, you know, he, he ended up losing that, that set. And there's a, there's a great quote from him 
that, you know, he said after the match about his thought process and his self-talk in between that second set that, you know, that he lost going into the third set. Again, he's playing against Rafael Nadal, the person who currently has the most grand slams in, in men's tennis and men's singles. Um, and a person who's been his idol growing up in Spain, you know, there's, there's photos of him when he was much younger with, with Nadal as well. So this is a player he's always looked up to also a player who at the same tournament last year and Madrid last year beat him quite handedly. Um, so he had won the first set, he'd lost the second set. And here's his quote that, that he talks about reflecting on it. I lost the second set. And then after I went to the bathroom, it helped me. I washed my face and then in quotes, okay, Charlie, if you're not going to pull out, think about playing. Don't think on your ankle. Don't think on nothing else. Fight till the very last ball because you know you're capable of doing it. So I, I think there's a couple of things that stand out there. And I know, Brian, you, you um, when we were talking beforehand, I, I know you, you have something to add here too. Um, but I think a couple of important things. Number one, just the behavior. Um, of, you know, you, you lose a tough set, let's go to the bathroom, let's reset, maybe not as long as some other players on tour, but um, let's go to the bathroom and reset um, and, you know, spend that time sort of resetting and reflecting on whatever just happened, getting ready for whatever's ahead of you. And I, I like how he said, you know, if you're not going to pull out, think about playing. Don't think about your ankle, don't think about anything else and fight. Um, so he's giving himself a very clear instruction that, hey, we're not going to be focused on the ankle. We're not going to be using that as an excuse. We're going to be focused on playing, doing what he has to do. And then the end of this quote, because you know you're capable of doing it. That's what he said. Um, so giving, you know, telling, giving himself a clear instruction and also adding in some motivational self-talk um, to, you know, motivate him, to give him confidence that he knows he can do it. Um so I really like that particular quote. And again, he, he ended up winning that, that third set um, and, and beating the doll and then obviously winning those next two matches. Um, and I think, I think this also has to do with some of the other self-talk, so, sorry, some of the other quotes that he's, um, that, they, that he, he's had um, in, in recent weeks. Um, and, and even after this tournament, you know, he, he talks openly about that. He wants to win a grand slam. He thinks he's ready to win a grand slam. Um, you know, he's a player with certainly a lot of hype around him. A lot of people are talking about him, putting expectations on him, right? That he's the next Nadal. A lot of people have said, a lot of people have said, you know, he's the next number one. Um, but he's said, he's talked openly that, you know, in a, another quote, I'm not afraid to say I want to win a grand slam. I know it's going to be really hard, but I'm not afraid to say it. Where other players would, you know, especially at his age as a teenager, not be ready to make a statement like that. But I think he, he says it, with humility, he's always been very humble, always focused on sort of the process of getting to where he wants to be, but um, also isn't afraid to, to speak confidently and say that he's ready to beat the best players in the world and to win a Grand Slam. Um, so just wanted to add that in, but I, I really thought that the, the match against Nadal really highlighted some of that same resilience, but at that one key moment in between that second and third set. I think he's displaying there elite level self-belief. We've mentioned this paper that was written in the early 2000s about what 
elite athletes perceive mental toughness to be and what the most important attributes of that are. And at the top of it is this idea of of uh, an unshakable self-belief, as much as it could be unshakable, um, and really believing that you you can have these capabilities, like you can win, you can do this. There's a There are fewer doubts there. And so when he said to himself, because you know that you're capable of doing it, um, it was reminiscent of what Novak Djokovic said to himself in the 2019 Wimbledon final um, when he was down match point to Federer, which was, you know, he, he reminded himself that he belonged there and that he was the better player. And you have to have that level of self-belief for yourself in that moment. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be broadcast to the world and sound like arrogant or whatever, but you need that that level of self-belief when you're in that moment and, and competing. Um, and, you know, you mentioned getting off the court, Josh, you know, just for everybody who's listening, this is a good idea when you've lost a set, if you can do that. Um, you know, with many of the college teams that I work with, kind of have a rule that if you lose a set, especially the first set, that you take a break, get off the court, get out of the environment a little bit, reset yourself, do what he did, splash some water on your face, just take a few deep breaths, and then you can re-enter the, re-enter the court maybe with a little bit of a fresher mind. So that was good. Um, the other part of self-belief that I, I really like when he's talking about not afraid to say he's winning a Grand Slam, it's very reminiscent of a guy in another sport who is, you could argue, one of the best ever, which is LeBron James. LeBron James, at 18 years old, said he wanted to become the best player in basketball history and similarly said it in a humble way. Wasn't saying it in in an egotistical way. And um, that's something that, you know, helps athletes aspire to mastery and excellence. So when you think of, let's say basketball, you think of LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, these guys were constantly mastering their skills. That's what made them so good. The winning was a result of the mastery. And I think we're seeing similar approaches with Alcaraz and you know, his coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, who's obviously made this journey himself to a, to a certain extent, right? Um, so I think that's really cool. The other thing that you know we were mentioning, talking about earlier before we started recording, was the, the specific quote that Carlos Alcaraz used when he was, um, you know, went to the bathroom. And we mentioned this in a previous episode about self-talk and ways to engage different voices. Some, if you think about what Alcaraz was going through in that moment, he had an injury, and maybe his ankle's hurting. It can be really easy to just get immersed in that problem. And uh, you mentioned, Josh, it could become an excuse. And if you just stay there and you're just thinking about the ankle and, and you can't get any sort of distance from it, then it probably then this probably ends up as a loss for, for Alcaraz. But what did he do here? He, he created some psychological distance from the problem by using his name, first of all. Right? Okay, Charlie. Okay, Carlitos. Um, that right away engaged his coaching voice. Now he's sort of Carlos, the coach, talking to Carlos, the player. And then he used the second person, you, right? Okay, Charlie, if you are not going to pull out, think about playing. Don't think on your ankle. 
and then he kept using second person you. Um, great tip for anybody who's listening to this. If you feel like you're immersed in some issue in the match and why you're losing or whatever, and you want to try to get out of that, use your name and start using second person you to help you uh, get out of that. So this was just, you know, we mentioned that maybe two episodes ago. And what a perfect example, Josh, of an elite level player using this type of self-talk to to really turn a match around. Uh, absolutely. I think that's, I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted that because it's it's the type of actionable tip or advice that, that every player can use um, rather than saying, you know, you, you miss a backhand and rather than saying, oh, your backhand is, is horrible, giving yourself an instruction while using that that third person, um, you know, using your own name is, is really powerful. So I, I, yeah, it it activates that, that coaching voice. It, as we've talked about the multiple roles that a tennis player has to, um, embody or incorporate when they're out there, um, being your own coach is one of the most challenging parts of being a tennis player. So I think this is a great, I think it's great advice and it's, it's research, you know, backed advice to, um, to embody that coaching voice, to be a more effective coach out there um, and to, you know, sort of break through um, that resistance or, you know, sometimes if, if you're just using, you know, the word you or I, um, it, it can be sort of tough to break through, but using the, the name itself is, is really powerful. Yeah. Um. I think, you know, if we're also looking at Alcaraz in terms of, say, locker room power, he's starting to develop his own, you know, and the way I'm hearing that is, I mean, Zverev called him the best player in the world after the match. Um, There are videos of, uh, you know, the ATP, they have videos where they interview players with different questions. And I think one of the questions was, who's going to be the breakout player in 2022? And it seems somewhat unanimous that Carlos Alcaraz was going to be that player. So he himself is establishing this, um, this type of locker room power. He's starting to create this aura. And it'll be really kind of interesting to see how that plays out um, in Paris and at the, at the French Open. He's certainly going to be part of the, the conversation there. And um, it's a, it'll be a great opportunity to see what he can do in a in a in a grand slam now that he's gone through again more experiences over the course of of this spring and and to see where he is you know at that moment and he'll definitely have a target on his back he will definitely have a target on his back i mean you know he, he sure he's 19 but now he's number 6 in the world now he's beaten most of the top players in the world um and you know, he's not going to be surprising anybody, certainly. And yeah, like you were saying, a lot of his um, peers have, have talked very, very positively about him, whether it's Zverev calling him the best player in the world, whether it's Tsitsipas. I saw an interview with him where he was saying that he really looked up to Alcaraz um, and just, you know, the, the, the type of um, style that he plays and he plays very loose and sort of, you know, fearless um, and, you know, uh, and and also the way that the Djokovic and Nadal talked about him going into the match and and after the match as well. So, um, you know, he's he's definitely earned the respect of his peers. He definitely 
has that locker room power in the in the moment. Certainly, I think he's had it, as you mentioned, Brian. Going into this year, there was you know hype around him. He was right around thirty in the world. He had won the uh, the next gen finals um, at the end of the year tournament for all the um, up and coming top young players, um, but hadn't fully made his breakthrough in the way that we've seen this year. So um, no, I think when it, when it comes to locker room power, um, it goes both ways. Part of sort of earning that locker room power is being able to beat the best players in the world and, you know, play in this fearless way and really take it to them, not waiting for them to make mistakes because the best players in the world are less likely to make mistakes and miss in those key moments. So you have to be the aggressor. You have to be the one that takes it to them ultimately and takes, takes chances. And um, I I think that's also something that I, I noticed about him more from a tactical perspective. Um, His use of the drop shot is something that I've, I don't think I've ever seen a player use the drop shot as well as him. Yeah. I mean, it was brilliant in the, you know, the, the placement of it, you know, when you're hitting drop shot winners against Novak Djokovic, you're hitting a pretty special drop shot. Absolutely. And and he often, he often is able to hit the, the drop shot, you know, as a winner, he, against all, all different types of players, Demonor, who's also known as being very fast, Nadal, um, you know, all, all these, Zverev, Tsitsipas, you know, all th- these top, top, players who are all known for their speed and he's able to hit these drop shot winners against them. And, you know, the the drop shot um, is, is often known as being lower percentage, riskier, um, not always a shot that's necessarily advised from a coaching perspective because of how risky it can be. You know, it's, it's often a shot that you play when you're ahead in the point yet you're, you're adding a lot of risk to that shot yet he manages to do it in a way where even on some of the biggest points you know break point down um he's able to to use that shot and go for it and 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 the the re, the um the types of results that that he gets um i think speak for themselves um but I, I think you know that that is just part of the you know from a physical perspective some of the tools that that he has that, that he's bringing to the game i mean um I, I think djokovic talked about his kick serve and i think particularly on the ad side using that out wide kick serve um is very effective for pulling you know pulling the opponent off the court um and you know setting up his forehand being able to hit into the open court in that way um and, you know, his, his touch around the net is also very strong and just very, very solid from the baseline on, on both, both wings. So I think, you know, he seems to have the, all the different tools. We, we talk about the physical perspective and then really where we focus on this show is, you know, the, the mental perspective in terms of the confidence, in terms of the humility. He seems to have embodied a lot from Nadal's classic humility that, that you know, is, is so often talked about. Um, where, you know, he's not being egotistical, um, his body language on court, you know, seems to be very strong. He's not the type of player that we've seen smashing his racket or yelling at himself very much. Um, you know, are there moments where he gets flustered or or a bit frustrated? Sure. Like any player, but especially when compared to, you know, other top players in the world who, have moments of, of smashing the rackets or, you know, having more outbursts. We haven't seen that from him. So I think, you know, he 
at least at this point, again, he's young. He hasn't been on tour as long. You know, we, we don't have as much data on him, but he has really embodied a lot of traits of a top competitor, of a, of a top player, you know, so, so young, so early in, in his career. Listening to him talk about how competitive he is, and we've discussed, you know, good definitions of what it means to be competitive. He has it. He he understands it. So he, he talks about enjoyment of his tennis and enjoying competing and playing the game as very important to him. Yes, I'm a competitive guy. I love to play the game. Um, and he, he had a message, I think, for younger players, which is, you know, that enjoyment is really the most important thing in that he doesn't see his tennis or his training as an obligation. It's not a have to do, it's a want to do. And that's a good message for players of all ages, especially younger players, is that you want this to be something that you want to do. You want to enjoy it. You do not want to see it as I have to go to tennis. I feel it's a chore, an obligation. Um, That won't take you very far. And you can see the joy on his face when he wins. Uh, even in his press conferences, he has this really authentic and genuine smile after every answer uh, to questions. So, you know, he just seems really sort of delightful kind of guy who loves to compete and, and understands and probably through the, you know, he, I think he has a very special relationship with his coach, with Juan Carlos Ferrero. They're really, it seems quite close. Um, and there are a lot of parallels, Josh, I think, to to Alcaraz and Nadal. You know, Nadal at this age was slightly ahead. Um, I don't know that his game physically was quite as complete. But Nadal was pretty special in terms of being one of the greatest defensive players in the history of the game. And people may not remember how fast Nadal was in 05, 06, 07. It's crazy (laughs) how some of the, if you go back and watch some of the highlights of his uh, defensive tennis from those days is just unreal what he did. Um, but his serve wasn't as good as Alcaraz's, his backhand not as good. But the mental game was there. He was, you know, immune to Federer's locker room power. He was able to make Federer work hard. Forehand obviously was great and different. It was extremely unique, you know, and I think that was, and being lefty. But, you know, I think, like you said, Josh, there's there's some parallels. There's the humility. There's the tight family. Alcaraz has talked about how important it is to have his family around him, and he still lives with them. And uh, so that's a that's a similar to Nadal with his with his family unit. Um, and you know that he's using competition as a way to improve. Uh, both guys were very humble at this age. Nadal, I think, was much more reluctant to say. Uh, things about winning Grand Slams and and being the best in the world. Um, Times were different. Federer was almost a tennis god at that point in time. Djokovic hadn't really come onto the scene yet, at least as a great player. And so uh, it was probably harder for Nadal to to say things like that. Um, But, you know, I I really like what uh, the way Carlos Alcaraz is conducting himself and um, 
you know, I'm the type of person, Josh, I don't really like to say that someone is the next great thing. I feel like for me, I need a lot of data to say that, or I need to see something special because we've had over the years, people, you know, immediately jump on a player and say, oh, this is the next big, big thing and so forth. And then they more often than not fizzle out. Um, not that they are bad players or they drop off the radar completely, but they don't necessarily come to like they're going to be world dominant players, you know, like Joe Wilfred Song, a great player, you know, and when he made the, the Australian Open final um, and a lot of people touting him as being, all right, the net, one of the next guys, yeah, a good player, but didn't quite happen, um, you know, and so you see examples of this. Emirata Kanu, she won the US Open last year. She's a good player, but we haven't seen the consistency from her. Doesn't mean she won't find it and get there, but. You know, I, I personally have a hard time anointing people as the next great thing until I see a lot of data, until I see a journey of, of real growth and development. And I do see that with this kid. I, I, I really see that. And I think when you have your fellow peers on the tour saying that you're going to be the breakout pro of the year, I think that really says something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the challenges with having a lot of success is are the expectations that come along with it are the additional pressure that comes along with it when all are you ready your... to handle that at that moment right exactly yeah exactly that's that's the question that's that's the challenge when you when you win a grand slam when you you uh, mentioned Emma Raducanu, um or when you win a masters right there's there's going to be more attention and more pressure and more expectations that come along with that. So, um, I mean, I, I think we also, you know, we, we've, we've seen it a lot. Tennis is a sport where obviously it's an individual sports sport where players are in the spotlight. Um, and I mean, whether it's Coco Goff in, in recent years, you know, who's, who's now, you know, a top player, it's still as a, as a teenager, um, but hasn't quite, you know, won a grand slam or anything yet. Um, I mean, th there's, there's been countless players on, on the, the men's side, on the women's side, um, who have, you know, had a lot of hype around them, who've been called the next big thing, the next number one, the next grand slam champion. And as a player who's going through that, it's really, it, it's really challenging to deal with those expectations. And, you know, you can let those types of comments get to your head if you're not careful. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a delicate balance between being confident and believing in yourself, believing that you can do it and not letting the types of expectations or pressures that other people put on you um, affect you and get in the way. And, you know, every player will lose matches. This run that he's going on right now will come to an end at some point not not to say that he won't become number one and win grand slams but he won't necessarily keep up this level and this momentum forever so you know when when he loses a big match how does he respond after that i mean i think he showed when he um went to to um monte carlo and you know this was right after miami and lost in i believe the first round to uh sebastian corda um, you know, he lost, there was again, a lot of hype around him then, and he lost in the first round. And I, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he showed a lot of humility in that moment, essentially saying, you know, and, and was able to keep things in perspective, essentially saying like, Hey, I lost a match. I didn't die, you know, 
life goes on. I need to, you know, learn from it and, and move on. Um, and I, I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is that when there's a player with so much hype around them, so much, so many expectations on them to be the next big thing, being able to handle defeat, being able to handle those ups and downs is, is a huge skill. I would say one of your most important skills because it's great. You know, when, as long as you're winning matches, everything's great. But as soon as, you know, you, you start to lose a couple matches or you have an early round defeat, maybe at a big tournament, people start to question things. People start to, you know, make comments. Oh, maybe he's not all that he was cracked up to be um, or things like that. So to me, it seems like he has this sort of foundation of the, the, the types of character skills that are needed to get to the top, to handle that pressure. Um, and that's, I think, what, what really makes him special. I, that's what, you know, it seems like is going to help help him continue his rise to the top of the game. And I think that if we were to look at Nadal, Djokovic, and Alcaraz, one thing that's in common, for the most part, is a lot of stability in the performance team around those players. Because a lot of those things that you're talking about, Josh, the ability to handle pressure, expectations, building character, that comes from you know the people around you. They can really help you through that. It's, it's. I think it would be hard to do this all on your own. And I think when you look at the performance teams of those three guys in in particular, there's been a lot of stability throughout the years. I mean, Novak has used different coaches over time, but there have been a lot of stability with the family. Um, I think Martin Vida has been there for a long, long time, you know, and obviously Rafa's team and his family have been there. And I think we're seeing the same with Alcaraz. I mean, I would expect his relationship with Juan Carlos Ferrero to be quite long, uh, similar to Rafa's with his uncle. Um, you know, obviously he's moved to Carlos Moya now, but that that's also been, a, you know, for several years now. And But that was somebody he knew as a, as a teenager, if not even before, right, growing up in, in Mallorca. So I think it's important to understand, and maybe this is more for younger players who are aspiring to be pro, um, it really is important to understand who is on your performance team. Um, you know, what, what are the character traits that are important to us as a, as a team? What are we really trying to achieve? Do we have the right perspectives? Do we have the right terms of you know, long-term vision? One of the things I really like that, that Alcaraz was saying in his press conference after the final against Verev was, um, you know, this notion of, you know, are you the best player in the world, et cetera, you know, a lot of pressure to, for him to say that. But he kept saying that, you know, I can improve in everything. And that's, that's great to hear because there are new levels for everyone. Just because a player becomes number one doesn't mean that he or she gets to stop practicing and improving. Um, so I think it's great that he has that in his mind that he wants to improve at everything that he does. Um, and that, you know, that has to be coming from the performance team and the people around him. And so I think that's a really key aspect of players who are aspiring to, to go pro that you really surround yourself with good people, people who are really invested in your development, you know, not people who are necessarily trying to make a name off of you Uh, because that happens. We know that happens. It happens in all sports. Um, and so I think that that's a, it's an important part of the Alcaraz story, in my opinion. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, I think having a coach like Juan Carlos Ferrero, um, who, you know, has his own academy, 
who's been number one in the world, has won a Grand Slam, been to, I think, two other Grand Slam finals. Um, and, and, you know, was a, was a player, and, and Brian, I, you probably watched him play more than more than me, but um, the, the type of player that, you know, reached the top of the game, um, I, I think was, was no, called the Mosquito, was known for, you know, being, getting to balls, you know, moving around the court, um, playing in the sort of a, a very resilient way. Um, so I, I think, you know, just, just from that piece, just having a coach who's been with you, you know, w- w- somebody who just turned 19 and has had a coach who's been with him, I think since he was 16, um, is, is huge. And to have somebody with that type of expertise and that type of, you know, has, who has seen it, has been there at the top of the game, um, is, is really special. Um, and I, I think one other thing that I would highlight, um, is this time last year, Alcaraz was outside of the top hundred. So we're seeing a player now who's at the top of the game, who's beating all the best players in the world and was outside of the top hundred a year ago. And I think it, it similar to an episode that we just, um, did on tennis parenting, and, um, you know, talking about how focusing on results at such a young age rather than development is, is a challenge to, to the, the development process. Um, it didn't seem like when he was, you know, a, a year ago, didn't seem like it was, oh, I need to get to the top of the game right now. It's more, okay, let's keep developing my game. Let's keep enjoying this process and trusting that, that the process that I'm going about will ultimately, you know, help, help get to the, you know, help us get to the top of the game. I think another player who took a sort of a different path, but, but embodied a a similar philosophy is Yannick Sinner, where he had a, a unique pathway where he wasn't playing in many of the ITF junior tournaments, um, actually started playing in um, ITF pro tournaments, you know, futures tournaments at a, at a very young age and, you know, was, was not winning a lot. I think at 14, 15, really when he started, but it's sort of in a similar way, he hasn't reached the, the same type of heights as Alcaraz, but in a similar way um, had sort of this, this, this rapid rise where, okay, you're maybe you're losing matches. Um, you know, you're, you're not winning or living up to people's expectations as much as people maybe want for a while. And then all of a sudden it happens at once. You've trusted that process for long enough. You've put in the work, you've put in the yards and then all of a sudden, boom, it happens. And people think it's, you know, you're an overnight success, but really you've been working towards this day for a long time. So I think, you know, it's important when we think about his story to, to recognize that, you know, it has been step-by-step. Step. He, he was again, 120 in the world this time last year, and then, you know, 30 by the end of the year, and now he's up to number six. So it's, it's been step-by-step-by-step, by step by step, but if during the development process, you're so focused on that next chapter or getting to the top of the game, then you really lose sight of what needs to be done at, at, at the, the current moment, at the present moment. And it, it's the same way in a match, right? If you're, if you're playing against Djokovic and he saved match, you know, he saved break point after break point after break point, it's very easy to lose sight of what you have to be doing out there in your game plan and your strategy, rather than having the perspective. If you've just lost a set 
the second set against Nadal, it, rather than focusing on that third set, it's very easy to sort of lose sight of the whole mission and be focused on that set that you just lost or be focused on your ankle. So what I'm trying to say is that the perspective that's needed in terms of the longer development process, but also within a match in some of these challenging situations that will come up. Um, I, I think that's a really critical skill to, to be able to have that perspective and to be able to sort of remember that and access that in the moment is, is a challenge, but it's something that he has been able to do at, at this point. And from a career perspective, the development path is unique to all of us. So we don't want anybody to think, well, if you don't make it by 19, you're not going to make it. Let's remember Federer didn't become sort of the Federer that we really know until maybe 23. Uh, Djokovic, while being a very good player at 18, 19, 20, uh, it took him a little bit longer to become the Djokovic that we know. Um, yeah, Nadal, he was pretty good at 18. Um, and, and so we, we all know that. Alcaraz, is, he's, he's good at 19. Yannick Sinner is a guy who maybe is going to be a little bit on that longer development path. He's a very, very good player. Um, and it may just take him a little bit longer to put all the pieces together. Uh, certainly some of the other guys like Zverev and Tsitsipas and team have taken a longer time. We can't necessarily give up on them, but I think the thing that that Alcaraz has that they have not consistently demonstrated is the ability to be immune to the locker room power of the big three. Um, I think that they have been a little, I mean, deferential might be the wrong word, but they have been a little bit, um, just didn't believe enough. Where Alcaraz, as you mentioned earlier, Josh, he, he you know, there are a lot of things about him that has that self-belief. He's got that elite level self-belief that that's needed. And uh, it'd be nice to see Yannick Sinner develop that because he's, he's got a great game as well. And he's fun, he's fun to watch. He's got a lot of good, good positive energy out on the court. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, as we think about these types of players that are up and coming, players that have had success, you know, at a young age, I think, I think it's important to, you know, similar to what you were saying to, to understand that everyone's process is unique. Everyone's, you know, everyone peaks at a different time. Um, I could think of other players, you know, I, I know we're focused on, on men's tennis. Um, somebody like uh, Stan Wawrinka who hadn't won any grand slams then, and then, you know, in his late twenties, um, early thirties started really, you know, having his best results and, you know, every, for, for some players, maybe, you know, that, that light bulb goes off later, a, a little bit later in their career, or they make a change in their, in their game tactically. Maybe they start paying more attention to the mental side of the game. Maybe they start paying more attention to strength and conditioning or their nutrition or their sleep, or, you know, certain things just take longer to, to, to develop. Um, in, in terms of, you know, the, their strokes and, and their game overall. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important for, for parents to understand that. I think it's important for, you know, maybe um, adult players who, again, are not playing in the Grand Slams, um, who are playing, you know, at the, at the USTA level, let, let's just say, um, to understand that, that everybody's path is different. You know, that, that, that player that you're playing against, who is who has the locker room power? Who's the best player at the club or the best player in the community? Um, you know they they may have um, peaked earlier 
where maybe, you know, if we look a year down the road, two years down the road, five years down the road, um, somebody, another player might be peaking and, you know, may have surpassed them at that moment. So I think, you know, understanding some of these things, keeping these things in perspective is critical to not, you know, lose, lose confidence, to not lose that sort of self-belief that is required to bring out your best tennis. Yeah. And, you know, so I think we started this episode off with discussing Carlos Alcaraz and, and this, this remarkable journey uh, this spring, this year, 2022. And I'm excited to see where he goes with this. You know, as you said, Josh, the, the run will come to an end at some point. Um, but it's going to be fun to see how he proceeds through Roland Garros and uh, Wimbledon and the rest of the summer into the U.S. Open. I think it's going to be a really exciting 2022. We've got a lot of guys. Um, you know, there's a lot of history on the line with both Federer. I'm sorry, uh, Djokovic and Nadal. Um, in this year, you know, with the, with the number of Grand Slams, but then we also have this rising star. And we still have, you know, I think Alexander Zverev is uh, he's still getting better. Um, and so, you know, he, he might be uh, in the mix as well. So Sissipas. Sissipas and, and maybe you know Dominic team is on the on the comeback trail. You know, I know Andy Murray had to play in the first round. Andy Murray had quite the quite the path in this tournament, playing playing team and then beating Shapovalov and then unfortunately had to pull out with illness against uh, Djokovic, but that would have been a remarkable nostalgia match. In- he had a great he had a great quote um at the end of the match, um, when Murray played team and both of them have been through, you know, significant injuries and essentially was saying to team, you know, just, you know, give it time. You'll, you'll be back at your, but, you know, it's great to see you back, but, you know, just give it, give it time. You'll be, you'll be back at the top of the game. So that was, that was good to see. Yeah. And I think we talked about that in our sort of taking a break or injury episode where, you know, coming back, after a long layoff, it is a process and it's, it's a little ugly and rough at the beginning, but the more you put yourself out there, you know, similar to what we were saying earlier, the more experiences you get, you'll forge yourself back into the player you were and, and, and better. So um, any last thoughts on Carlos Alcaraz? No, I think it'll be, you know, and, and interesting and interesting to see how he does at Roland Garros. At the French Open, uh, I think it's you know I'll go back to my point that um, if let's just say he doesn't win, a lot of players are saying you know a lot of players, a lot of commentators are saying he could you know he could win this, and he certainly he's demonstrated that he he can. But if he doesn't, what's the impact going to be? Is he going to you know are are people going to say oh he didn't live up to expectations or are people going to understand that hey he's 19 he's still developing he said it himself that he still has you know ways to improve and you know understand that he will have a, a long career with you know the ups and downs and has certainly a ton of potential i would say as much as potential as anyone i've seen since since the big 3 um but understanding that there will be ups and downs and that that resilience is needed to I think maintain your position at the top of the game. So I think, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how he does not just in Roland Garros, but beyond again, Wimbledon, you know, coming up right around the corner after the French open and then, you know, the summer swing and just that, that change of surfaces. And um, I think I, I'm very excited to see what he'll do in the rest of this year and beyond. As am I, as am I. 
So, well, thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out our show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram account. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.